last week we were talking about if, if you're going to undertake this practice uh, seriously to achieve the various benefits that it has to offer, how you go about preparing your mind, attitudes, and so forth to do that. And we talk about joy, how the cultivation of joy is both uh, a result of, uh, or joy rather, is both a result of meditation, but it's also a cause of successful meditation. So cultivate joy in your life, cultivate joy in your meditation, understand what joy is. So, um, before we move on to other ways to prepare yourself for this practice, uh, and of course I'm talking about preparing yourself, it doesn't mean I know many of you have been practicing for years, but uh, it never hurts to look and, and see, okay, are the things that I can do that will enhance the quality of my practice and the success of it. But before we move on to other factors, are there any questions about what we've already talked about? Yes. Yes, uh, about impermanence. You talked a bit about impermanence last uh, week, and I've been trying to uh, see how I <clears throat> how I can apply an awareness of impermanence um, daily, but impermanence in the sense of there are no things. Ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not not observing how things arise and pass away, but rather the, the notion of, of there are no things. How would you develop that kind of awareness? Well, by recognizing all of the other senses in which things are impermanent, it, will become, it becomes a more and more refined sensitivity to the fact that everything's changing and in flux. But the other thing, too, is it's not a just, just a looking outward thing. It's also a looking inward thing and seeing that a huge part of impermanence is that the mind that's perceiving something now isn't the same mind that perceived it last time or even a moment ago. That's changing as well. Um, One of the things that becomes more obvious in our practice is that really that the, when you get down to what is absolutely incontestably true, it's that your conscious experience is all there is. And a world of mountains and rocks and trees and cars and everything else is a projection of your mind onto something. And, of course, the something that your mind is projecting it on, that changes. And that's one aspect of impermanence. But the mind that's doing the projecting is constantly changing as well. And so uh, you, you become more and more aware of that, and it helps you to see this more clearly. In meditation, you will have experiences that help you to see both of these things more clearly. You'll see, you'll see the uh, how the experiences you have 
arise and pass away. But you'll also see how your mind's uh, acceptance, reflection, response to those experiences is also just a momentary, just exists for an instant and then it's gone. One of the things that you might notice at any time is that a thought comes into your mind and it disappears. And where does it go? You don't even know what, you know, it was a good thought. I find that. Where does it go? So, so all these things are, they're all pointing you in the same direction of seeing that as your understanding of impermanence deepens, it becomes an understanding that, uh, that the idea that the world is divided up into separate things, and I'm one of those separate things, begins to dissolve into a much larger, totally interconnected, interpenetrating process of continual change. That help? Yes? If non-Buddhists have a serious meditation practice and they do the right limiting and all that, they don't come to the same conclusions. Well, they're going to they're going to have similar insights, but they might describe them differently. They they might describe them in, uh, in terms of a different sort of metaphysical worldview, but they're seeing the same thing. Um, I think I have mentioned to you before. Bernadette Roberts, and she is a person that went through the insight experience, but totally unaware that there was any such thing as Buddhist insight. Uh, for that matter, uh, she had she had no references to turn to when she was going through it. And so, as a devout Catholic all of her life, who had spent uh, a huge chunk of her life as a nun, uh, she interpreted her experiences in the terms that she was familiar with. But if we read those books from our perspective as a, a Buddhist practitioner, we'll recognize that she's talking about exactly the same thing. So what do you think of the um, stroke of insight? What do you, what is the stroke of insight, the one with the stroke that she describes? The right... A stroke of insight, yes. Uh, mm. It's the TED Talk, right? Is that, is that the TED Talk? No. Oh, it was uh, a TED Talk. Uh, Jill Bolte Taylor. Yes. Stroke of Insight, a book and also a <clears throat> video that you can watch on the internet. Has stroke affected one side of your brain. And it basically caused certain mental functions to cease taking place. And I'm through a great stroke of good fortune, <laughs> uh, the mental functions that it interrupted uh, were many of the ones that are problematic in terms of they obscure our, our perception of how things are. And so, in that sense, uh, her stroke was a gift that gave her insight into some 
some basic truths. Uh, so that there's a period of time where she didn't experience much in the way of an ego structure. That was that was an experience that gave her a lot of insight. Uh, the other thing is that as she recovered, she realized that there were some mental functions that she didn't really want anymore. And she actually made an effort to keep those from coming back. <laughs> and so she had a lot of uh, input insights. How far they went, I, I've only I've never met the woman. I've only read the book, seen the video. And from the perspective of what we're going to towards, there's a lot further that she could go. But you have to keep in mind that this was a totally independent discovery as a result of a serious brain injury. But it does illustrate something. It illustrates that we're born with a brain, the result of which we have, with a particular kind of brain, the result of which we have a particular kind of mind that naturally tends to see things in a particular way. And the particular way that our mind-brain sees things is a way that is conducive to our individual survival and reproduction. It has nothing to do with ultimate truth or even our happiness. It only has to do with making sure that this chunk of meat lives long enough to reproduce itself. Job done. Was it fun? Who cares? <laughs> we have a different point. <laughs> we have a different point of view. We'd like to opt out, opt out of that, and say, I'm not here to do that anymore. I'm just here to have fun. <laughs> Anyone else? Well, in addition to joy, what's helpful is to um, cultivate some basic understanding of things. It just save you a lot of struggle, strife, Frustration, impatience, and things like that. We naturally see ourselves as the agent in charge who is responsible for making things happen. And it gets to take credit for it when it works. <laughs> but ends up in a very uncomfortable position when it doesn't work. And one of the truths that we will discover as we go along and as you have insight experiences and as your insight deepens is that there is no I, me, that's in charge of my mind. But long before you have that insight, it's really helpful to... To have that piece of information and apply it. And when you find yourself getting in a stew about what your 
capable of doing in your practice or what you're not capable of doing. How well things are going or how you perceive them to not be going the way you want. It can be very helpful to remember that. that there is no I in charge. You, your mind, is an evolving process with many different components to it. And the closest thing that you have to an I in charge is any degree of consensus that can be arrived at by the different parts of your mind. And so the I isn't the same I all the time. And so that means that you're going to get different results at different times. So just try to keep that in mind. That's an important attitude. You see, when we try to be the I in charge, then we set ourselves up. If it doesn't turn out, we're to blame. We don't like that, right? <laughs> We like it when we can take the credit, but we don't like it when we have to take the blame. And so, your mind is going to react when its sense of I feels like it has is failing in some way. And I bet you know exactly how your mind is going to react wants to pass the blame on to something else, right? Mm. Not to be my fault. And so the mind will play tricks. Now, is it not true that if you have strived really, really hard and it didn't turn out, it's not your fault, right? We pretty much ordinarily come from that place, you know. If I've really given it my best effort, gritted my teeth, sweated and strained, and couldn't get it done, then I don't have to feel bad about it anymore. It must have been a dumb thing to do anyway. Or it wasn't the right way to do it. Or it's because this was happening. I would have succeeded, but there was this other factor. That's a game that your mind will play. It will actually make you believe that sitting and bringing your attention back to an object every time it strays is hard. <laughs> It'll make you think that. It'll build up this story about this is too hard. I really tried. Forget about the part where you get worse as you go along. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> then you get to be judgmental too. Yeah, oh, that's right. And, 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 and then doubt starts to come in. And this is a total waste of time. There's much better things that I can do. All kinds of things like that. Well, that's all your ego self. Trying to get itself off the hook 
because it felt like it was responsible. So let's let it off the hook right away. It's not responsible. Your ego self is not responsible. It's it's you're either going to achieve the consensus that's going to work well each and at a particular time you sit down, or you're going to not quite achieve the consensus that you need that day. But there's always the next time you sit down. Or for that matter, if you're only halfway through your meditation sit, there's the other half of your meditation sit. And if the whole meditation goes in constant mind-wandering and dozing off, so what? As long as whatever part of your mind was on board, was staying on track with what you were supposed to do, it's going to have an effect. It's going to have a benefit. The other thing about your ego self in all of this is if you think about it, what does it mean to be disappointed in the results? To be dissatisfied? To have fallen short. Fallen short of what? The rules. Or the rules? Yeah, the rules. Or the goals? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My own oh, whose goals? My own expectations. Who set the goals? Yeah, they're your own expectations. It was your own ego self that set the expectations in the first place, that set up the whole situation that could make this feeling feeling like a failure and feeling bad possible. Yeah. I wonder why your ego self did that. <laughs> Probably for no reason at all, right? <laughs> or maybe you compared yourself with other people. Or maybe you have some desire, things you've heard about what meditators can do. I want that. All kinds of things. But or maybe ultimately because we don't want to suffer, so it has a somehow pure intention in there. Yeah, that's right. But it doesn't know what's. What yeah, I don't want to succeed in meditation, so I don't suffer anymore. So. Therefore, <laughs> <laughs> therefore, when I feel like I haven't succeeded, I suffer. saying it requires an ego to bite off more than you can chew? Uh, it doesn't. I don't think it absolutely requires it, but but if you got an ego, it helps a lot <laughs> to have an ego. But it's not even a question in terms of meditation of biting off more than you can chew, but it's somehow thinking you can chew it better faster than you really can. So, watch out for the self-identification and the way that will set you up to experience frustration, disappointment, dissatisfaction, and then that leads to to all kinds of doubt, which then leads to procrastination. You know, it's, it's endless the kinds of problems that come, and, and it's all just coming from setting unrealistic 
expectation <coughs> and losing track of how incredibly simple what you're doing really is in, in terms of the actual actions that you're going to perform. Uh, as a matter of fact, you don't even have to have any, you don't even have to perform any actions. The hidden part of the story is there's no you to perform the actions anyway. But it is all ultimately coming from intention. There is a part of your conscious experience that is intention. There's a receptive part. We feel and see and hear things. We also become conscious of thoughts and memories and emotions. So we receive information through our senses, including the mindsets of the sixth sense. We receive information from all of our senses, and that's the content of our consciousness. Um, what you become conscious of is the result of a lot of unconscious processes. When you see something, your eye, visual part of your mind has processed that put a label and identification on it. You see you see a person. You see a recognizable object. And it arrives in your consciousness already very elaborate. It's got all kinds of values attached to it. <clears throat> Even some amount of pleasant and unpleasant qualities. So think about what your consciousness is. It's these things appearing, and they appear in a form that is a result of unconscious processing. Okay, that's the passive receptive aspect of consciousness. The other thing about your consciousness is that there are conscious intentions. And although, although this is one place that, you know, the storyteller in our mind, storyteller in our mind always like to say, well, I intended, I decided, I, I, I. But what's really happening is an intention arises in consciousness. And just like your visual perceptions and everything else, the thoughts that emerge, it's the result of unconscious processes. Whatever action takes place is the result of those intentions. And so your task really comes down very simply to you as not the executive in charge of your mind, but you as the collective that is your mind. All that, all that you as a collective that is your mind has to do is come up with sufficient intention and things will happen. Now, I don't know whether you can follow this or not, but some of you can. I cannot raise my arm. But the moment that I generate the intention to raise my arm, my body reacts. But I couldn't do it in a million years. 
but my body reacts very strongly to my attention. My mind does too. When you sit down and meditate, all you're really doing is trying to form and hold certain attention. That's your that's the total task that you have before you. The intentions, in turn, are fairly simple. They're related to the simple actions. You want the intention to return your attention to the meditation object when it's ready. Then there are you know, more things that follow that I can elaborate on further. The intention to be aware of when there's something coming up in the background that wants to take away your attention so that when you recognize it's there, you can form the further intention not to let it happen, to focus in more closely on the meditation on So I won't go on, but I just wanted to point out to you that everything comes down in terms of the active side to intentions. And it's the unconscious parts of your mind that are the sources of the intention. The storyteller will always attach an eye to the intentions, intentions that arise. Even when they're conflicting intentions. I wanted, but then a part of me wanted. You know. And it's the I and the me. It's really a part of this mind and another part of this mind. So in meditation, you're unifying your mind. You're trying to get more parts of your mind working cooperatively and holding the same intentions. And when they do, you get particular results. The particular intentions that we've defined and the particular results that you're looking for are ones that will lead to your mind being trained to function in a much superior way than it has before. All the things that you're doing are going to train your mind to function as a unified whole with clear intentions. And the rest of the Dharma practice helps you to make sure that those clear intentions are wholesome, beneficial, going to produce the right kind of result rather than the wrong kind of result, and so on and so forth. The same principles actually apply to unwholesome intentions. And um, the unfortunate thing in the world is very often people are much more successful at unifying their mind around unwholesome intentions than they are around wholesome intentions. They become preoccupied with Thoughts of avaricious thoughts, lustful thoughts, vengeful thoughts, all kinds of unwholesome intentions. And when their mind becomes very strongly solidified around those intentions, it usually produces, it's, it's effective, it produces a result. But meditation, it's a very skillful application of just the basic principles of what the mind is and how it works. So it's helpful to remember that, too. That your job is incredibly simple. 
in terms of following the instructions of meditation, but it's even simpler than that. All you really have to do is muster enough intention so that your mind does the things that you want it to do. And I, I won't be able to remember this properly, I wish I could. Intentions become thoughts, thoughts become words, words become actions, actions become character, and character becomes destiny, or something like that. You've, you've probably all heard that before, you know what I'm talking about. This is, this, this, this is it. This is it. It all starts with intentions. Intentions lead to actions. And when intentions are repeated, the actions become more and more automatic. The more and more automatic the actions become. This is an indication that of it. it's a training. It's actually a rewiring of your brain. It's a retraining of your mind to behave and respond in a particular way consistently. So through simple repetition, it's just simple repetition of forming and holding attention that the intention becomes stronger. It's through the simple repetition of the actions that flow out of the intentions that the predisposition to those actions becomes stronger. And as, as those predispositions to act in a particular way become more and more strongly ingrained, it shapes and forms who you are. And it gets easier and easier. I've heard that there's a trap associated with that process. And the trap is that once those pathways are established, those are the ones that feel good. So when you try to step outside of that pattern, it doesn't feel good anymore. And you want to return to what feels good. And that's that habit. And then until you can change that pattern and put another pathway through the brain, that one is the predominant one because it feels the right thing to be doing. It's an interesting thing about what makes something that you're used to do to doing feel good. Um, part of what makes it feel good, even if it results in you feeling bad, <laughs> but it'll make you feel good when you do it, is that when it's really, when, when you're mind is trained to act and react in that particular way. It involves a coming together of different mental processes. There is a unification of the mind that occurs around that particular thought or that particular act, that particular way of behaving. That's what makes it feel good. And What's really interesting is that people will continue to do something out of habit, even though it makes them feel terrible shortly afterwards. You know, you have to bridge that gap between doing the thing makes me feel good. The part of your mind that set that action in motion, once you've done it, it, it retires. It goes away on holiday leaving the rest of your mind to deal with the consequences. And the two don't get connected together. So you need to get the two connected together so that when you're behaving habitually in ways that 
ultimately make you unhappy or dissatisfied afterwards. You need to get that message communicated back to where these patterns of behavior come from. When the message gets there, it starts to change the program, and that will help enormously to undo the habit. But of course, we're talking about the flip side of forming strong mental habits through your practice that unify your mind, and they bring about feelings of joy, and they become very easy to do for exactly all the same reasons. So mustering intention seems to be a key. Intention, yeah. You can't, it's impossible, I think, to overstate the significance of intention. Uh, The Buddha went so far as to say intention is everything. He said, when I say karma, I mean intention. He, you know, he was using karma in a different way than people have previously used it. But when I say karma, I mean intention. Intention is everything. Ultimately, as he, uh, as he said, and as I think is probably obvious to you all, every single thought, word, and act that you do ultimately comes from intention even the ones that are automatic. They may have come from conscious intentions at some point. But even when they're automatic, there is still intention as part of that. When it rises into consciousness, when you feel a mosquito land on your arm, there rises an intention. Goodbye, mosquito. Uh-huh. You could be thinking of it as sending it off to a better life. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. I was making no judgment. <laughs> I was just saying it's it's one of those very, very simple things that, you know, there is an intention. You can analyze the intention behind that. that it hurts when it sticks its little stinger in me. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't like the way it makes me. There's all kinds of things, but, but the intention is there. Intention is behind everything. Ultimately, the intention is even behind the emotions you feel. Your emotions are actually an orchestrated response by your mind to push the rest of your mind to behave in a particular way, to do something. The whole purpose of an emotion is to make you do something about something. A good name for it, e-motion. You know, it hmm. sets you in motion, makes you do something. Or, or sometimes not do something, but that's a kind of doing too. So your emotions are an orchestrated response to circumstances. Behind your emotions lies an intention. In the present, it may be a misguided intention, but it started out as one that's reasonable. In you may have been very small, little tiny baby, when you started forming these emotional responses. And your intentions behind those were very simple. You wanted to feel good, and you didn't want to feel bad. And so 
when you produced a particular kind of emotional response and it brought about a particular kind of result that made you feel either more good or less bad, what that simply meant is that that emotion was more likely to be produced next time a similar circumstance arose. And over time, it gets more and more strongly programmed. What happens if you give your child everything they want every time they whine and complain? They will never stop whining and complaining. (laughs) (laughs) And then they'll have a great problem when they get to the stage in their life where whining and complaining does not get them. (laughs) Just the opposite. They'll still whine and complain, right? (laughs) And then they'll have to struggle with this and they'll have to reprogram themselves. But we're full of this. All of our emotional responses came about the same way. Out of intentions. And the intentions were pretty basic and pretty simple to begin with. They got more complicated and elaborated, elaborate when we, as we got older. You get to be 14 or 15 and social acceptance and all of these other things becomes a priority. You generate some pretty complicated emotional responses to things. But they still all come from the same place. Trying to get you what you want. And some of the ones that you learned when you were 14 still serve you today. Others, not so much. So intention is a at the root of things. Well, back to practicing the Dharma. As I say, you can't overstate the importance of intention. Intention is karma. Intention, your intentions, the cumulative effect of all of your intentions is who you are. And who you will be tomorrow will be who you are now plus the effect of all of the intentions that you generate between now and You want to become a really good meditator? Focus on those simple intentions behind those simple actions that will get you where you want to go. Questions? Yeah. What influences intention? Ah, very good question. What influences intention? Intention is the product of desire, aversion, and ignorance. Unless you have converted some of your ignorance into wisdom, the degree to which you have succeeded, your intentions can arise out of uh, wisdom, compassion, loving kindness. But, as in the, you know, if you think about it very simply, where we all start out is something is painful, we experience aversion, pleasure, uh, it's pleasant, we experience desire, and the aversion and desire generate the intentions to think, feel, act, speak, so forth, in particular ways, in order to satisfy the desire even if it's an aversive desire. So that's what's behind the intention. Uh, desire and aversion are what's immediately behind the intention. 
ignorance and delusion are what are behind desire and aversion. And so we kind of need to work our way backward through these things. Gain some control over the direction that our intentions are taking us. By means of that, begin to get a handle on our desires and aversions and ultimately solve the problem when we overcome the ignorance and delusion that supports it all. The Dharma in a nutshell. Concerned, I won't say this well. Um, some of what we've been observing more and more closely as we meditate is you're not who you think you are, and you're not really driving because you you can't control what rises and passes away. You don't even know where it went. There's all this stuff that is not the we we think we are. I kind of so absorbed this idea that I'm not driving that when you outline what is intention and what influences it, I'm kind of asking, do we really have control anywhere in that process of craving and aversion and Ignorance. It, it it all kind of looks like it all kind of looks like you have to wait for a, an opportunistic moment to come in and, and kind of say, Yeah, do more of that one. And otherwise you don't really get what you'd say is influence. Well, let me make sure that I understand what are you saying. You're saying more and more that I'm not who I think I am, I'm not in control, I'm not driving. The proper way to phrase that last thing is, I am not driving. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have that. That's right. But that doesn't mean that there's no driver. It's we, collectively, and I, the we I'm talking about now is the we in here. We, not I. Forget the I, because if you take any part of we and put a hat on it says I, it's just going to get messy. <laughs> but we, and if you, if you recognize that no one part of your mind is in control of the rest, and that it's really a we, and what happens is the cultivation of consensus, it's not the result of some parts of the mind forcing other parts of the mind in submission. It's an interesting thing. Our minds function in such a way that it's very difficult to make that happen. Different parts of your mind just have too much autonomy. The only way you can get different parts of your mind to work together is to convince each of those parts of your mind that this is in the best interest of the whole. Because the prime directive of each part of your mind, its responsibility is to make its contribution to the well-being of the whole, the happiness of the whole, the success of the whole. And the problem comes with all the different parts of your mind that have 
different views and understandings about how that's best achieved. So, there is a driver. The driver is just constantly changing. But, but the more you can unify your mind, and the more cohesiveness that you can bring about, which is all related to intention, the more clear and precise your intention is, that is a reflection of a unification of your mind around a single clear purpose. Most of our intentions are not clear. We think that this is what our intention is, but it's really something else. Uh, We think, oh, if I do this, then I'll be happy. And then we do that, and it doesn't work. What we really, if, if we had a clear intention to be happy, instead of a clear intention to do this because we think we're making it happy, we probably could have seen that it wasn't it wasn't the best way to go. And could have chosen another option. But instead, some part of your mind that thinks that's the solution. If if I become a dot com millionaire, all of my problems will be solved. But as some people know, some dot com millionaires just aren't very happy. So, are we on the same wavelength here? It was good that you said it does not mean that there is no driver. Right. It was good to say that because that's what I had come to doubt. Okay. But, you know, anytime there's a disagreement in a group, it can be extremely helpful to have some outside influence come in that's not been a part of the argument and give a new perspective, which can then bring the different parties together. And so, the other part of what you said is really true, that you can, seemingly by chance, but not necessarily, hear or read or something that makes a difference, come in contact with somebody, observe some situation, or become part of the situation, that makes the change. Um, It's basically giving, I mean, it's not that there isn't a driver, but sometimes the driver's pretty scattered, trying to go in several different directions at once. So, it's It's, It still looks as though the unification that we're craving is, is kind of an opportunistic thing. You blunder into it's, it's kind of drunkard's walk. The, the most efficient path turns out to be this drunkard's walk. Well, actually, no. That, that's the way it happens in the world at large. It's a drunkard's path, and most drunks don't end up where they want to be. That's the difference. In meditation, it's not a drunkard's walk. It's a well-trodden path that will get you where you want. So it's not all just an opportunistic crossed fingers, try it this way. Yeah, your drunkard's walk ended when opportunistic circumstances brought you to study the Dharma and to learn to meditate. 
Now, you could at any point choose to resume your drunkard's walk. <laughs> okay. So in so meditation, you're trying to allow the different voices, different minds, to sort of announce their intention, have a little discussion about what's best yeah. for everybody. Yeah, it allows it. Is, you're training your mind how to function better so that it can arrive at a very strong consensus of intention but you know and it's an accelerating process the more parts of your mind that you get working together cohesively the more powerful your mind becomes and the more capable it is of bringing the other parts of your mind on board so uh, it, it just accelerates it's really the, the first beginning of this the challenge and that's why you need to have a certain amount of faith and I think that's what we'll talk about next week the uh, faith and doubt and teachers and paths. <laughs>